Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, including information on taking open learning modules in history at UCD, which are open to the public, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, part four of David McCullough's six-part series on John A. Costello. David McCullough is a journalist, author, and presenter of primetime on RTE television. A PhD graduate of University College Dublin, where he studied history and politics, McCullough has written two books, The Reluctant Taoiseach, a biography of John A. Costello, and A Makeshift Majority, a history of the first inter-party government. This episode is entitled Declaring the Republic. There have been very few foreign policy initiatives in Irish history that have generated as much controversy as Jack Costello's Declaration of the Republic. The then Taoiseach was accused of making a major decision on Ireland's constitutional status on a whim as a result of a personal insult in Canada. Some versions of the accusation even suggest he did so while drunk, a most unlikely suggestion about a relatively abstemious man. So what was it all about and what really happened? To understand the story, we need to go back to 1936 and the abdication crisis caused by King Edward VIII's decision to leave the throne in order to marry his divorced American girlfriend. This caused a constitutional kerfuffle in England and offered Eamon de Valera an opportunity which he seized with both hands. Because the Irish Free State was still technically a dominion of the British Commonwealth, the Dáil's approval was needed for the appointment of Edward's successor, his brother George. This gave de Valera the leverage to get away with some constitutional creativity. He introduced legislation which removed all mention of the King from the Irish Free State Constitution, paving the way for his own constitution introduced the following year, which in effect made the 26 counties a republic. But he also introduced another law, the External Relations Act, which stated that Ireland could nominate the king to carry out certain diplomatic functions, signing letters of credence for diplomats, formally ratifying treaties and so on. This meant that Ireland could claim to be an independent sovereign nation, while Britain could pretend that Ireland was still part of the Commonwealth and therefore could continue to allow Irish citizens to enter Britain without passports and continue to treat Irish imports as being from the Commonwealth. This diplomatic sleight of hand suited both sides and de Valera hoped it could serve as a bridge to Ulster Unionists, a bridge the Unionists never showed the slightest interest in using, it would have to be said. So everyone was happy, right? Wrong. The main opposition party was not happy. Fine Gael viewed the new arrangement as a betrayal of the treaty over which a civil war had been fought 15 years before. And Jack Costello in particular had no time for its subtleties. He told the Dáil he didn't care what the constitutional position was going to be as long as they knew where they stood. He said he could understand Ireland being a full member of the Commonwealth and he could understand a declaration of a republic, but he couldn't understand what he called the indecency which has been perpetrated on this country by this bill. Dev was great at constructive ambiguity. Costello despised it. While the External Relations Act seemed like a brilliant wheeze at the time, it soon became a problem. During the Second World War, for instance, neutral Ireland couldn't replace its representative in Berlin because the letter of credence addressed to Hitler would have to be signed by King George VI, which really wasn't very likely. Shortly before he lost the 1948 election, de Valera had come to the view that it was time to get rid of the External Relations Act. His Attorney General, Carullo Dolly, had prepared legislation to do so, but while he had warned the British representative in Dublin, Lord Rugby, he didn't get an opportunity to actually do it. 
And so we come to the change of government. Costello, an opponent of the Act, is Taoiseach. Labour leader Bill Norton, another opponent, is Tornister. And Clown Republic leader Sean McBride, the most vociferous critic of the Act, is Minister for External Affairs. Foreign diplomats in Dublin, British, Canadian, American, all report home that the Act will be repealed sooner rather than later. And while McBride didn't make it a condition for joining the inter-party government, developments over the summer brought the issue to a head. There were awkward questions in the Dáil. In answer to one discussion, Bill Norton said it would be a good thing if the Act went and de Valera told him to go ahead. He wouldn't get any opposition from Fianna Fáil. And there were rumours that Padder Cowan, a former clown of public to TD, might introduce a private member's bill to get rid of it, thereby causing a serious problem for the government. De Valera was also considering a private member's bill to get rid of the Act, which would have caused even more of a problem for the government. There was also an invitation to attend the Commonwealth Conference in London in October. The government finally decided to say they would attend if there were issues of interest to be discussed, as long as it was understood that Ireland was not a member of the Commonwealth. And there was the question of official toasts. Costello was disturbed when in London for economic talks when there was a toast to the King, but not to the President of Ireland, which implied that the King was Ireland's head of state too. All of this encouraged the government to think about clarifying Ireland's constitutional status. Costello himself was clear. He believed Ireland had left the Commonwealth years before, after she stopped attending Commonwealth conferences. McBride thought the 1937 constitution made Ireland in effect a republic. Nobody around the cabinet table seemed to think the External Relations Act was of any further value. Here we come to a major difficulty. Costello later claimed that the government had come to a decision to do away with the Act. Such a decision wouldn't be surprising. The only problem is there is no record of it in the government files. But Costello, rightly or wrongly, appears to have been under the impression that a decision was taken, which would help explain what happened next. Costello went to North America in September 1948 as the guest of the Canadian Bar Association. He delivered a speech to the association which mentioned the External Relations Act. He referred to the inaccuracies and infirmities of its provisions, a strong hint that it was to go. But he then went on to ask whether it was fruitful to inquire too legalistically into the nature of Ireland's association with the Commonwealth, which implied he wasn't about to do much about it. And then came Roaring Meg. The Governor-General of Canada at the time was Lord Harold Alexander, a famous, if rather inept, British general who had accumulated considerable undeserved honours during the Second World War. He was also closely related to Ulster Unionism and shortly before had been made a freeman of the city of Derry. Sorry, Londonderry as he would say. As a memento, he was presented with a silver replica of Roaring Meg, a cannon used in the defence of the city against Jacobites in 1689. At a state dinner for Costello, this was the centrepiece for the table, as was apparently standard practice at the time. While Costello didn't say anything for fear of offending Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King, who was sitting beside him, he was furious. He was also annoyed by the failure to offer a toast to the President of Ireland and by Alexander's manner, which he thought was rude. However, that would have been the end of matters if it wasn't for the Sunday Independent. A couple of days after the Roaring Meg incident, it led with a story claiming that the External Relations Act was to be repealed. In Canada, Costello came to the conclusion that a member of Cabinet, probably McBride, had leaked the story. He was due to face a press conference on the Tuesday and knew he would be asked about the story. He had four choices. 
He could deny the story, which would be a lie. He could refuse to comment, which would be taken as a confirmation. He could say the issue would be dealt with when the doll returned, which would also be taken as an implied confirmation. Or he could just confirm the story. Coslow decided that as the report was true, there was nothing in honesty and decency open to me but to admit the truth. An interesting approach to politics and diplomacy, answering journalists' questions fully, truthfully and accurately. It's unfortunately not caught on. But Coslow didn't just confirm the External Relations Act was going to be repealed. That much was relatively uncontroversial and wouldn't have been news to London. He was also asked, did that mean Ireland was leaving the Commonwealth? And he said, unequivocally, yes. That's what caused the problem. Costello believed Ireland was no longer in the Commonwealth, so he didn't feel he had said anything significant. But if he hadn't been so frank, Britain could and most likely would have continued to pretend that nothing had changed. As it was, London now felt it had to do something. Clement Attlee's government threatened all sorts of retaliation, treating Irish people in the UK as aliens, denying access to Irish goods and so on, but was stopped by the other Commonwealth governments, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, who insisted nothing should change. Faced with this pressure, London accepted Ireland's departure from the Commonwealth calmly, passing legislation to ensure that the change would make no difference to how Irish people and exports were treated. But the Ireland Act also included a sop to unionists, saying that the status of Northern Ireland would not change without the agreement of its Parliament. London saw this as a statement of the obvious. Dublin saw it as copper-fastening partition and protested long and loud about it. But that was the reality, the same reality that had faced Irish nationalists since the Home Rule Crisis of 1886. They could have independence or they could have unity. They couldn't have both. And the further they moved towards one goal, the further away they moved from the other. It was a painful lesson. And far from taking the gun out of Irish politics as Costello hoped, the declaration of the Republic, by provoking the British guarantee to the north, arguably laid the ground for the IRA's border campaign a decade later. What began with a replica of a cannon would end up with real guns.